0: Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutiérrez Suárez, one of the hosts of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast series of the New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Adrian Pierce, Associate Professor of Spanish and Latin American History at University College London. We are also with Dr. David Bersford-Jones, fellow of the Heinz Heinen Center for Advanced Study, University of Bonn, and affiliated researcher at the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research at the University of Cambridge. We are finally with Dr. Paul Hegarty, senior scientist in the Department of Linguistic and Cultural Evolution, at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, Germany. Hello, Dr. Pierce, Dr. Berfors-Jones, and Dr. Hegarty, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology.
2: Pleasure to be here.
0: Likewise. And for me. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about the book you have recently co-edited, Rethinking the Andes and Mesonia Divide, a Cross-Disciplinary Exploration, published by the University College London Press in 2020. I'm obviously more than happy to have this interview, and thus offer our audience a close outlook to this outstanding, insightful book. Now, um, before we start to talk about the book itself, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the work you have been developing previous to the publication of the book?
2: Well, my name's Adrian Pearce, and as you said, I'm Associate Professor of Spanish and Latin American History in the Spanish Department at uh, University College London. I came to UCL in 2016, so I've been there for five and a half years now, uh, from the Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City, where I lectured full-time for three years. Um, I'd previously been at King's College and other institutions. Um, Over the course of my career, I've developed a number of research projects. The first was actually to do with uh, Spanish rule in the Viceroyalty of Peru, that's to say, in Spanish South America, or most of it in the early 18th century, the so-called early Bourbon period, that gave rise to my second monograph. In fact, my first monograph came out of a postdoctoral project on British trade commercial relations with Spanish America in the last half century, 60 years or so prior to uh, independence. And um, I'm currently working on a book on the Falklands War. Of 1982. I've also worked on uh, Native Peoples of the Andes in the 19th century, and I came to this project, as we'll doubtless hear later, uh, through the agency of Paul and David, my co-editors for this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm uh, David Beresford-Jones. I'm an archaeologist, uh, uh, as you said. I'm an affiliated scholar at the Macdonald Institute of Archaeological Research in the University of Cambridge. Uh, I um, did my PhD there back in 2005 and uh, um, since then (laughs) I have uh, worked in Cambridge in one form or another through various forms of uh, postdoctoral fellowship. Um, I would call myself an environmental archaeologist primarily. I'm interested in deep time uh, relationships between people and their environment and how they affect their environment so i'm particularly interested in the story of the origins of agriculture uh, in south america um, which is of course a, the, the the most powerful example of people interacting with their environment over a lot of a deep time uh, i have worked on the south coast of peru um, for more or less all my career i've i have uh uh, run a research project in the lower Ica Valley, so it's particularly the coast of Peru which I am familiar with. <clears throat> uh, in that sense, I'm not even an Andeanist, let alone an Amazonianist. I'm a Pacific coast archaeologist, um, but uh, obviously I'm um, uh, very interested in the in the in the in the deep time uh, prehistory of the Andean region generally. Hi, I'm Paul Hegarty. um Again,
3: as you said, I work at the moment in. Uh, Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany. I've been here for about 10 years on and off, moving around a bit, but still within the Max Planck. Um, I actually started off uh, working in languages, researching in languages, comparing languages and and trying to, but above all, trying to use comparisons of languages to to find out what they can tell us about the past, about people's origins, basically where, where they come from. Um, I've worked quite a lot on Indo-European languages, languages of most of Europe and India, uh, Iran, and so on. Um, But also in the last 20 years or so, I've been working in the Andes, uh, particularly on Quechua. And then, you know, necessarily you need to (laughs) look into Aymara as well and other languages like Burkina, uh, but particularly Quechua in my case. Um, But that's just the linguistic side. I've always been interested in other ways we can find out about the past, um, particularly archaeology. And um, for a while, where I met met David, in fact, was the uh, Archaeology Institute in Cambridge, where he's still based. Uh, And there I was working with Colin Renfrew, a very well-known archaeologist who we ended up taking on his first trip to Peru many years ago. Um, And the the interaction with David led to uh, more or less the the first in this long series of uh, interdisciplinary uh, meetings conferences almost um on the andes and so that led to a book called archaeology and language in the andes which i edited with uh david and but at the same time i was thinking well actually what about what about adrian because i had known him from undergraduate days and it was him who'd really who'd been to peru before i ever had and he'd got me into it and he had then become a historian with a big focus on peru and so we tagged on another meeting uh there and that turned into another edited book, History and Language in the Andes, edited by me and Adrian. So, and then it just went on from there. We've had lots more uh, of these conferences, uh, specifically trying to get linguists, archaeologists, historians, geneticists, anthropologists, just all talking to each other uh, and working out more about a more coherent history, prehistory for the Andes. Uh, and that's where this book came out of. This was just, it's just the latest book to come out of that long series.
0: Now, um, how did you become interested in the theme of um, the Andes-Amazonia divide? And, and how did you start to work uh, on this uh, specific book? Could you please tell us about the genesis and the process behind it? I think I might start on this
3: uh, because it's actually quite a little little anecdote, really. Uh, one of our authors in the book is called Vera Tulleneva, who I actually met by chance at the University of St. Petersburg, I can't remember which year it was something like 2001. Uh, And she had set up um, a sort of just a bunch of students there who were very interested in, uh, she's really a sort of art historian, but she was fascinated by South America. And she set this group of students up called New World, and I happened to be there at the time. And this was you know the years in Russia where none of these students had actually ever been to the New World, and I turned up there and I said, "Well, oh, I got, I met Vera, having seen her little poster for the New World group at the university, and so I ended up giving a few talks there because I had happened to, I'd actually lived in in Colombia and Peru at the time before then, uh, and then it turned out that maybe 15 years later I was invited as a PhD supervisor for Vera's. PhD defense, which was in Pisa, actually, (laughs) at the PUCP, uh, the University in Lima has a sort of retreat place in this mountain village in the tourist zone near Cusco. uh, And that's where Vera's PhD defense was. And her theme, as in one of the chapters in that book, was crossing the Andes, you know, the perceptions of Amazonia from the Andes. Uh, And one of her other supervisors was... um, Rodolfo Seron Palomino, who's a linguist at the at the PUCP in Lima, and another one was Bruce Mannheim, who's an anthropologist and has written a lot about Quechua uh, history as well. And while we were there, and there were questions going backwards and forwards, and I I had sort of hadn't run out of ideas for the next event in the series that I wanted to do, but it really struck me: hey, this this is what we should do. We should do the next theme, the next idea for a, a conference should be about the Andes-Amazonia divide. Uh, And that's when I came up with this idea. Uh, And at the time I had, it was relatively easy through the Max Planck system to to fund another event. But I didn't, uh, you know, I was no great expert on Amazonia. uh, And I basically immediately called on David and uh, Adrian to help me from the historical perspective, from the archaeological perspective. Uh, I could sort of do that, the linguistic perspective. But again, it was always a sort of Team uh, organization to, to come up with this this uh, conference, which was twenty fourteen, I think, in uh, in Leipzig. I, th-
2: I think I think if I may, a further thing to emphasise is that uh, so this is a series. This this book arises from one of a series of conferences uh, and symposia, as Paul's emphasised, that began in two thousand and eight, um, and have proceeded over the years since, and have yielded a series of edited volumes, of which this is the latest. Uh, example and what's interesting about those conferences is that they are explicitly to some extent even aggressively uh, multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary and uh, in the original conference the the two major disciplines involved were archaeology and linguistics uh, and then history came in as a third discipline what was really distinctive what's really distinctive about this volume within the context of the series is that it brings in additional major disciplines, notably genetics, uh, which had not been represented at previous conferences and symposia in the series, but also anthropology and ethnohistory too. So this book comes out of an interdisciplinary series of conferences and edited collections indeed. Um, but that series has got more multidisciplinary as time has gone by. and and in this book there are there are six major disciplines represented: archaeology, linguistics, genetics, anthropology, uh, ethnohistory, and history.
0: Um, Now, um, you begin the book with an introduction where you make um, this statement. uh, Nowhere on Earth is there an ecological transformation so extreme and so swift as between the snow line of the high Andes and the tropical rainforest of Amazonia. Crucially, unlike the world's other Alpine regions, The Andes straddle the equator and tropics. Farming and large populations can thus flourish up to elevations far higher here than anywhere else. Yet, the Andes also abats directly onto tropical rainforests. From jungle to glacier hemat peaks to desert coast, a transect of as little as 200 kilometers makes for a roller coaster through up to 84 of the world's 103 life zones. And then you open the book with this question. Is the divide, in quotation marks, uh, between them a self-evident intrinsic definition of opposing Andean and Amazonian worlds or a simplistic parody? Why did you consider important to open the book with these um, appealing questions?
1: Well, I could venture to start that perhaps as an archaeologist. Um, and then uh, I'm sure Paul might want to say something about it also. Uh, as we try to capture in that bit of text, which you've just read, Gustavo, there, there's nowhere in the world which has so much environmental div- diversity in such a short uh, space, if you, if, 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 if you like, than the Andean region. Because it's in the tropics, number one, and because it's the second highest mountain range in the world, there is extreme altitude variation over a very short, a relatively short horizontal um, distance. So as one moves from the desert pr- Pacific coast with its very rich marine resource and its very lush uh, riparian oases along the rivers up uh, into the Andes and then uh, onto the Altiplano uh, and then down through several sets of cordillera into the, into the eastern slopes of the, of the Andes and where, where you encounter Amazonia, there is this incredible compression of different ecologies in a short space. And that diversity is uh, critical to the story of agricultural origins. I think in in uh, in, um, in South America, uh, and uh, and it's also um, it's also what creates this idea of a divide in the first place. I suppose because um, as we talk about. Um, in our introduction, uh, and I do a bit in the archaeology chapter with my Amazonian colleague Eduardo Machicado, uh, there has long been, uh, both from the Inca perspective and the Spanish perspective, a certain view of Amazonia as a as a as a as a uh, 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 a savage place, a place which was was difficult to 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 uh, to enter, and uh, that. That is partly a geographical uh, feature, um, but as archaeology, particularly as a discipline, has become more self critical through the end of the twentieth century, this idea that environments shape everything about human culture has uh, which is which was uh, sort of common currency, I suppose throughout the beginning of the twentieth century has become more questioned, uh, and it 's quite clear, of course that uh, nature is mediated through culture in various ways. And so that creates um, some questions about the sorts of uh, uh, preconceptions which people had about uh, the possibilities of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, complex uh, civilization and so forth in Amazonia, either from the perspective of the Incas or, or the Spanish. Um, so perhaps that, that addresses the question.
3: Uh, I would, I would like to come in as well. Just uh, one of the, the reasons I wanted to start with that sentence, nowhere on earth is also because it's almost like a paradigm case. It, Davis just mentioned this, this old idea of environmental determinism, and it's almost like the perfect test case. If, if differences in the environment determine differences in human societies, then look for the place where you get the most extreme differences and see uh, in environment. Uh, so you know, it's we all love South America and uh, it's almost like a way of trying to underline why we think it's so relevant. It's this, you know, unique hearth of uh, agriculture and civilization uh, and, you know, fascinating in all our different. We find it fascinating in all these different ways. And it's a way of demonstrating that this what you can learn here can be applicable worldwide to, you know, environmental differences. You know, that like. Um, Again, as David said, it's, well, th- there's a key question here of do do these environmental differences make huge differences between human societies or do human societies and cultures, do they specifically adapt s- so well to different environments that they mitigate those environmental differences? And so maybe they're not so different after all. And there was one other aspect to this, and which is why I ended up that, that first, that the sentence you quoted with, or is it a simplistic parody? Uh, which is that in our fields, in all of our fields, uh, basically all the researchers, they're, they're basically people. And most of us have little preferences, some like it you know, hot and steamy, some like it cool and crisp, uh, some like it dry and empty. You know. And it's so strange that I constantly met people who work in South America. But within a few seconds, you know, whether they're an Andeanist or an Amazonianist uh, and it's almost as if one of the reasons for the divide is just because researchers have personal preferences and they end up either, I prefer, tend to prefer the Andes. Lots of people say, why don't you come down and do Amazonian linguistics? Well, actually, I'm that's interesting, but really I prefer being in the Andes. And uh, so, and then the, you also get the case where there's a situation where some researchers, particularly anthropology, have a sort of tendency to want to downplay the differences between and find similarities between Andean and Amazonian societies. Uh, archaeologists and linguists have generally taken these things very differently. Uh, but as David said, the big change is going on uh, and particularly his first chapter with Eduardo is really about complete revision now in archaeology about how, how different Amazonian and the Andes really were. So um you know, that there are lots of aspects to this uh, divide question that we wanted to explore, and that's really why we came up with those introductions.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, um, in the introduction, you um, also talk about the often mentioned uh, Incas and Spaniards' reluctance to venture far into Amazonia, which reflects experiences of a specific military reverses there, Uh, you mentioned that in any case there has been a good dose of myth, of a mythical imagination about the Amazonian people, uh, the Amazonian other. How should we understand this extremely long representation? And what about this mythical vision in scholarly tradition, in in social sciences?
2: I mean if I might begin there your 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 question there, how should we understand this extremely long representation really goes to the heart of what the book is about it It, it seems clear that for certainly for hundreds of years and possibly for some thousands of years, people in the Andes at least have regarded Amazonians. as as different to themselves based on a series of tropes that are to do with Andean civilization uh, opposed with um, Amazonian barbarism, essentially, where Amazonians are naked and wear feathers and body paint and practice cannibalism and a whole series of of ideas that uh, Andeans have long held and expressed about Amazonian peoples. But... Uh, where that where those ideas come from i mean that that goes to the heart of the book and as we'll see uh, uh, later in in the presentation as we go through the kind of core sections of the book some of the chapter contributions it's actually a, a highly complex question it's it's very difficult to say and there are different notions as to whether this these ideas do reflect different forms of social and political and economic and cultural organization among these 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 two groups of peoples in the Andes and Amazonia, or whether they simply reflect um, constructions and prejudices expressed by uh, peoples on either side of what has traditionally been been viewed as an as 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 the Andes Amazonia divide, and certainly is a geographical and environmental divide, if not a cultural one.
1: Uh, and just a quick comment from my point of view is, that we, I mean, we said that th- th- this uh, image, uh, th- this myth has has gone on for a long time. But r- from an archaeological point of view, uh, it hasn't gone on for a very long time at all. If we're talking about the Spanish and the Incas, the Incas, of course, were were really around right at the, in, the f- in the final part of the of the of the huge story of uh, pre-Columbian uh, civilization. Um and uh, there are these intriguing uh, stories from some uh, Spanish uh, conquistadors who were uh, launching expeditions down into Amazonia uh, right at the start of the of the conquest, looking for. Uh, mythical cities of gold, El Dorado, and so forth. And once they, once they passed a certain point on these rivers, they, they there was no turning back, and they got washed all the way down, uh, right through the Amazon itself, and and finally out to the Atlantic. Uh, and they described uh, big cities and agricultural fields and so forth along the the banks of the rivers and those stories were discounted for for a long time as 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 a sort of inventions of 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 of, of failed uh, explorers and failed conquistadors um but it's quite clear as paul was alluding to um uh that the the new picture of of uh, Andean archaeology is is that that they're, they're very well that there were complex societies along the banks of these rivers and that they were large populations <laughs> and there were significant agriculture.
0: So uh, uh, yeah. Now um, you also art that um, the debate on Quechua and Aymara origins focuses less on whether expansive complex societies were responsible for their expansions and more on simply identifying which. Um, How should we understand this argument? I think I'll take that one because it's a linguistic issue really. um,
3: Well, linguistics and archaeology as I'll try and explain. But yeah, the the main point here is that in the andes it's we have such an archaeological record we have clear evidence for sort of expansive processes going on the, the sort of the three horizons in the traditional nomenclature in archaeology at least um and we also have two significant language families and for a language family to exist as a family at all it needs a geographical expansion so it needs some expansive process so basically Ever right from the beginning, any people who anyone was trying to explain why Quechua is so widespread, from affected from southernmost Colombia to parts of northwest Argentina, um, people immediately latched onto the Incas as the only pre-Columbian society that that stretched that far, that expanded that far. Um, so it it. It was nobody's really been debating the fact that these expansions to, are to do with complex societies in the archaeological record. Um, but there has been a, a lot of disagreement about which ones. <laughs> so the initial idea before any recent sort of scientific linguistic research was that the Inca spread all Quechua. That's clearly not the case. We now know that as of about the 1960s, it was realized how diverse Quechua is as a language family. It's not at all a single language, um, and it must be older. It must have been spread initially much earlier. So the question is then: Okay, which earlier societies was it? It wasn't the Late Horizon only. The Quechua did spread a lot of Quechua, but not the entire family. Uh, the, it had already been spread before. So the question then was: Who did the earlier one? Uh, who was the uh, responsible for the earlier expansion? And the reason uh, I put Quechua and Aymara in there, I illustrate that with the Middle Horizon preceding the Incas. Um, from about 500 to 1000 AD, very roughly, uh, the Wari expansion, that was initially by linguists suggested as having spread Aymara, not Quechua. And David and I, uh, early on in, in this series of proposed of cross-disciplinary uh, symposia, we sort of pushed the argument that no, Wari could have spread Quechua, not Aymara. So this is why I'm saying it's more about identifying which A complex society spread which language family. Um, There's other questions as well uh, about the relationship between Tiwanaku and Aymara, which again, looks like it doesn't really work very well. Uh, Aymara in the Altiplano is not that old. And then it brings in through archaeology, lots of questions about the what the nature of things like the Wadi middle horizon were, was it an empire, sort of aggressive military empire, like the Incas? Or was it something like a trading network or something instead?
1: But it's worth emphasizing a bit, I think, at this point, Gustavo, how, I mean, th- this whole uh, interdisciplinary project started uh, because of these sorts of conversations with Paul. Paul is presenting the story here from the point of view of a, of a linguist uh, and it struck me in our first conversations that these things which he took for granted uh, as a linguist were extremely surprising to me as an archeologist and they shouldn't have been because I was—I considered myself a, a fairly well-read uh, Andean archeologist and yet the idea that the Incas were not primarily responsible for the expansion of Quechua, or indeed the idea that Quechua was a language family rather than a language, caught me by surprise. And it wasn't just me. I mean, I, you, one can read any number of uh, of well-informed uh, historical uh, accounts of the Incas. Um, it's a commonplace idea that Quechua was the lingua franca of the Incas and that the Incas spread Quechua throughout their empire. And yet it was... Uh, it was quite clear talking to Paul that these sorts of m- myths effectively were, had long been uh, questioned by the the major linguists of the Andes, starting with Alfredo Torero and, uh, and then Rodolfo Serón Palomino and so forth. Uh, and, and again, another uh, myth which Paul has just mentioned, this idea that Tiwanaku Uh, spoke Aymara, and that Aymara, as the language of the Bolivian Altiplano, has its roots in Tiwanaku. That is something, again, which one reads in any number of uh, archaeological texts on Tiwanaku, and yet, uh, from a linguistic point of view, is is seriously doubted. So uh, these sorts of uh, things persuaded Paul and uh, and I initially that, well, this is precisely why uh, interdisciplinary work is important, because both the expansion of Quechua and the archaeology of Peru tell us something about the prehistory of uh, of that region. And by putting together the linguistic data, uh, and the archaeological data, which was w- what Paul and I originally tried to do with a f- with the first symposium, uh, one can get a more complete picture of prehistory and then of course, that same logic works through into history uh, with the with the following um, uh, symposium and then, as Adrian's talked about, by the time we get to this uh, particular. Uh, evolution in the, uh, in the interdisciplinary project, we are trying to bring in other disciplines like linguistics, I beg your pardon, like like genetics, uh, whose data is is completely independent, just like the linguistic and archaeological data. But by by looking at 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 narratives which fit these independent lines of data you're going to have a far more a far stronger interpretation of the past than you will ever do if if i sit here as an archaeologist and just look at the archaeological data which of course is very tempting to do and what a lot of archaeologists spend their time doing
0: now um why does research in amazonia tends more to skew explanations of of these types in favor of models of network like interaction exchange and convergence instead uh, for instance the ethnogenesis hypothesis for the arawak family again
3: it's a language question to an extent uh, i'll have i i'll start on this it's i just think we ha- we have language families in in the Andes and in Amazonia uh, actually in one of my chapters I sort of put out some point out some some types of difference between them uh, but I think the main point was that in the Andes we already had a very rich archaeological record and we had an archaeological chronology and we saw expansions uh, very clearly in the archaeological record so it was almost as if you know there was a smoking gun there were obvious candidates. In specific um, complex societies uh, in the archaeological uh, record, uh, whereas in the um, in Amazonia, those very obvious candidates were not there, just for for many reasons. Partly just because Amazonia is very good at hiding material culture evidence, or at you know dissolving it uh, in the environment out there, whereas the very dry Andes can preserve much more. So. It may be that there were we just can't see what complex societies they were as much, uh, or maybe they weren't of the same nature. That's again that's part of uh, David's uh, first chapter. But really, I would say language families can have different types of explanations, different types of expansive uh, processes that that push them and cause them to exist. Um, But it's I think it's more a difference in the archaeological record that we see that. That has pushed people in Amazonia towards more more network-like models. Another way of looking at it is actually, if you talk to Andean Amazon A- Andean archaeologists or ethnohistorians, they are far more aware of the linguistics of the of Amazonia than Andean archaeologists Andean archaeologists were, and I think that's because they haven't got as much to go on in terms of material culture, and they really do their homework uh on language families it, it's a, a striking difference between the andes and amazonia i found was that in amazonia the archaeologists knew far more about the language families than they did in the andes
1: <laughs> it's worth in, in terms of what paul's saying there, the other point about amazonia of course which we are pains to emphasize uh, in several places is that it's immense uh, it's absolutely huge it's uh, it's the size of western europe uh, and uh, and so not only uh, has the until the last uh, 15 years or so not been that much archaeology done there because of uh, issues of preservation and difficulty of access and so forth. But also it's just a gigantic area to try and uh, get a, uh, an archaeological picture about. <laughs>
0: Now, um, could you please um, explain to the audience um, a bit about the Andes-Amazonia interactions and exchanges?
2: I, mean, I think um, it, to, to, as a first, by way of a first comment. Um, it, and this almost goes without saying, it's it's never been suggested that, that, that uh, there have never been interaction or exchanges across the Andes-Amazonia divide, so-called, uh, or that those haven't been meaningful. Um, one of the problems with a book like this is that uh, where does one draw the line where those uh, interactions and exchanges become meaningful? And uh, if you look at the book, we'll, we'll see this over when we start to look at the sections of the book. But for the deepest period... Up to the middle Holocene, so up to about 5,000 years ago, uh, uh, the archaeological record seems to suggest relatively free interaction across the Andes-Amazonia divide, from Amazonia to the Andes, and vice versa. So on the one hand, relatively free interaction, although you know, the source material is very sparse and interpreting it is poses a number of challenges but also interaction that goes both ways that it's it's from amazonia up into the andes and and also vice versa so in that earliest period up to the middle holocene uh, it, you've got a certain pattern of relatively free interaction and exchanges across these between these two regions uh, and with no particular uh, dominance in the direction of those uh, interactions it's from the middle holocene and with increasing Resolution into more uh, recent periods, into later prehistory, that two things appeared to, to emerge out of the record, and now not not simply the archaeological or genetic record, but also the linguistic um, uh, and and to some extent ethnohistorical or historical uh, record too. That on the one hand, the the divide appears to sharpen; it, it appears to pose greater obstacles to interaction and exchanges. So the interaction exchanges become somewhat more limited, somewhat more obstructed, and more long-distance. Um, uh, and on the other hand, the direction of those exchanges appears to become more unilateral. It tends to be more from the Andes uh, to Amazonia. Now, looking at the detail of those put that picture, and looking at the detail of those arguments, you know, it lies in, in many of the chapters that run throughout the book. But that appears to be the broad picture, that one goes from a deep time picture of relatively fluent uh, uh, multidirectional exchanges and interactions towards a later prehistorical and also colonial period of actually much more limited uh, interaction uh, and that tends to come uh, from the top down, as it were, from from the Andes into Amazonia.
1: I think that the one qualification I'd like to add to what Adrian's just uh, summarized very eloquently there is the question of uh, which archaeologists are always very aware of, which is the question of scale, both in time uh, and space. So uh, it's important to keep in mind that when one's talking about the deep time interactions, which, which Adrian mentioned, we're talking about interactions over millennia. Uh, whereas if you're talking about the colonial period you're talking about interactions over mere f- fractions of time I- I- in comparison so it's hard to make compar- it's hard to make comparisons about uh, either about directions or about how fluid these interactions were between something which is happening over decades or centuries and something which is happening over 5000 years it's quite clear that the story of the uh, Oh, it seems to be uh, fairly clear that the story of the origins of agriculture in South America, the roots of that, as was uh, suggested long ago by by uh, geographers like Carl Sauer, lie in not in the in the flat uh, Amazonian um, uh, floodplain, uh, but in the foothills in the eastern. Uh, margins of of Amazonia, um, and that uh, a number of very important uh, Andean crops, which become the basis of of uh, of of. Uh, of, of uh, subsistence in the andes and the coast have their wild ancestors on those margins in amazonia and so the movement of agriculture the story of the foundations if you like of andean civilization has moved down into 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 amazonia and now seems to come from amazonia over uh the andes particularly in the north which we we'll may, may talk about it at some other point but uh over onto the onto the coast where whereupon it then turned into something uh different uh and um uh, and became uh the sort of uh classic idea of andean civilization
3: i, I would i think i'd like to have a, a quick word on this as well i mean you this really is a key theme uh, of the book obviously um we actually have several chapters that deal with what you might call the fringe or the transition, the eastern slopes of the Andes, uh, the, the transition between the Andes uh, and Amazonia. Um, so, so the Chiara Barbieri's chapter, for example, specifically takes this genetics. This is four case studies of populations that are somewhere, you know, going north, south, really, starting with Chachapoyas, uh, then the Yanisha, uh, populations that are on the edge, more or less between the highlands and the lowlands. Uh, and so it's a key theme. Uh, and the real question what about this theme? We actually have a, a section in the introduction where it, we're trying to make it clear that nobody, like Adrian said, nobody is denying there was interna- interaction and exchange. But we also don't want to take that too far. And just because there was interaction and exchange doesn't mean there wasn't a real divide either. We have to try and get a balance here. It doesn't just dispel any contrast. So, the sort of guiding principle, I would say, is It's about whether the interactions between the Andes and Amazonia are greater or less significantly than the interactions within the Andes and within Amazonia. Uh, And in that perspective, um, the interactions look a lot more incidental, certainly than what's going on in terms of interactions between people in the Andes. So uh, just two illustrations then from linguistics. Yes, language families of the Andes and of Amazonia are exchanging a few words and they have some little linguistic influences going backwards and forwards. But all of these major language families just stop, more or less, at the Andes-Amazonia divide. The Amazonian families do not go up into the Andes and the Andean families generally do not go down into Amazonia. Uh, There's one uh, exception to that, uh, which is one significant exception, which is lowland Quechua. So in Ecuador and in parts of northeastern Peru, uh, where you do get Quechua in the lowlands. But it's almost like the exception that proves the rule. A, this is the result of what the Europeans did. This is European missionary activity. And Reducción is bringing the Indians in and forcing them to learn a single language. uh, And they used Quechua from the highlands. And they took Highlanders and put them to teach the lowlanders Quechua. Uh, and what happened is that those lowland forms of Quechua actually on many linguistic criteria, start looking a bit more like Amazonian languages. <laughs> and also the people, the populations who speak those languages are genetically basically still, they look like Amazonians. They happen to speak a language that's originally from the highlands, but genetically they, it's almost as if the divide keeps showing through. Even if you teach them Quechua, they're still Amazonians. Uh, And they make that that catch will look a bit more Amazonian. So it was a fascinating case also in genetics and linguistics. And it's certainly the case that in genetics, there is an Andean population and there's much more interaction within populations in the Andes than from the Andes into Amazonia and vice versa. So that's the point of, you know, if interactions are greater within one of the zones than between them, then we still have a divide.
1: Yeah I think that's a very good way of looking at it Paul because Adrian used the word meaningful uh, you know whether there are not there were meaningful interactions but of course a lot turns on 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 what one means by meaningful from different points of view and different scales and so forth um, so I think just to to sort of add to what Paul said about the linguistics it was striking to me I'm not an Amazonian archaeologist and so I I I, I had, but it was striking to me that one of our contributors, uh, Heiko Prumus, who's a very uh, eminent German archaeologist who's worked both in the Andes and in Amazonia, one of few people, I think, who has done that, uh, made the point in his chapter that there... And he's, he was talking about the uh, large area of uh, Llanos de Mojos in, in Bolivia with a lot of archaeology in it, a lot of recently revealed complexity in the archaeological record, and yet... He he makes the point that there isn't a single artifact in 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 all their uh, investigations of this area from which is clearly from the Andes, and vice versa. There isn't there. One looks at the Andean archaeological record. There aren't artifacts. There are plenty of raw materials, things like feathers and other very important uh, materials which come from Amazonia, but there are not artifacts which are demonstrably Amazonian in the Andean archaeological record, which would, again, seem to to underline the point which Paul was making from the linguistic point of view.
0: Now, um, it is known that um, the Huarachiri manuscript registered in Quechua in the 16th century and translated to Spanish by the Peruvian anthropologist José María Arguedas, as gods and humans from Guaruchiri, contains um, some references to political tensions between Andean and Amazonian gods, for instance, Pariacaca and Guayayo Carwincho, respectively. Um, should we understand this kind of representations as references to long term Andes Amazonia interactions or division, or maybe both? Um, could you tell us a bit about um, this, this case?
2: I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not aware that in, in the book any of our authors uh, engage with that specific uh, case of, of an opposition between an Andean deity and an Amazonian deity. We have 2 ethnohistorical chapters in the final section of the book um, by Vera Tuleneva, who Paul mentioned earlier, and also by Christiana Bertazzoni, which look more broadly at kind of myths and mystification of Amazonian peoples by uh, Highland peoples. I mentioned some of the tropes involved earlier to do with ferocious animals and kind of untamed nature and barbarism and nakedness and um, unintelligible languages and uh, body painting and all those kinds of things. Um, and, 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 Interpreting what those mean, of course, is uh, difficult. Um, these are um, ethno-historical accounts that come from the early colonial period, but from uh, Andean uh, writers, such as Waman, Pomale Ayala, and they consistently display this kind of othering or mythification of uh, the Amazonian peoples of the lowlands. Uh, and and um, how those tropes came about, how they became so deeply embedded. And for me as a historian, a particularly interesting question, why those tropes are then so similar to those that the uh, Spanish themselves developed with regard to Amazonians over the 300 years of the colonial period is, is another question, and it's, it's, a, it's a highly complex one. But as far as the, the Pariacaca-Huagliallu-Carwincho uh, uh, opposition specifically is concerned, I don't, I don't have much to, up, to add.
3: I would say that we do. We have a chapter that's not entirely unrelated. The chapter by uh, Alex uh, Herrera and his, his <laughs> "Changing Andes Amazonia Dynamics" is tiny it, it, it says "El Chuncho mitel Inca" at the end of the Maranon corridor. So really, that's the sort of case study where we look also in uh, into you know the same sorts of myths uh, and religious. Uh, Ideology and differences between the Andes and Amazonia uh, comes into that uh, in, um, but it's it's at the it's at the Marignan, basically. Uh, so again, that chapter, yeah, I, I, the fact that there seem to be different sort of sets of deities and tensions between them, more or less. Fits with my uh, an overall take that I that, that I mentioned before that there are there are clearly interactions there are clearly things going on between Andes and Amazonia, but even again there there seems to be this contrast people perceive them to be two different uh, worlds almost even in a, a ritual sphere as well. So um, I think people interested in that theme might want to look at uh, that chapter by Alex Herrera as well.
0: Mm-hmm um now um why did you choose um an interdisciplinary approach to question the andes amazonia divide how did you come to this interdisciplinary approach and and what do you think about the challenges of applying this outlook for studying andes and or amazonia from now onwards um you argue that even if many of us now talk the interdisciplinary talk, it is still the case that rather few of us actually walk the interdisciplinary walk.
2: Yes, I mean, I, I, I crafted that particular phrase for our co authored introduction, even if it's now, many of us now talk the interdisciplinary talk it's still the case that rather few of us actually walk the interdisciplinary walk and the reason I I wanted to highlight that was my own experience of being involved in a project which as Paul and David have pointed out they originated with them and out of conversations between a linguist and an archaeologist actually many of them taking place in a pub in Cambridge uh, when it became apparent just how little um, each discipline knew of the other's methodologies uh, and also kind of um orthodoxies uh, and therefore how much could be gained by staging a focused conversation between those disciplines and the um i think somebody's typing which is making it somewhat difficult um uh, so um the, the the conferences that these that this book the conference that this book comes out of and the previous conferences in the series uh, were organised in a very distinctive way by Paul and David, uh, rather than inviting people to bring uh, again some, is somebody typing. Um, Rather than inviting uh, scholars to the conference and and all the conferences were by invitation rather than by open call to speak to, uh, you know, for for a standard kind of 40, 45 minutes on on a specific aspect of their current research. Um, Participants were invited to speak for their disciplines to specific major questions posed by the conference organisers. And their contributions were kept very short, sometimes even as short as five minutes. The, the result was that you got a kind of an opening statement piece from a disciplinary perspective on major aspects of interest of all disciplines, and then the majority of the session devoted to that speaker was turned over to open question and debate. I had never seen conferences organised along those lines before, and I was deeply impressed at the result. And I think, I like to think, that the books that have come out of those conferences then have had a very different character to traditional uh, volumes of conference proceedings, in the sense that the uh, the chapter contributions were were written after the conference and in the light of the discussions that took place there, rather than in advance of the conferences themselves. Uh, I think that's part partly why you know I would think of these volumes as unusually powerfully cross disciplinary in their discussions. Uh, having said that, you know the question about why what are the particular challenges that this poses? Well. You know, the biggest lesson for me of all is just how hard it is to do uh, or to stage or frame or facilitate genuinely cross-disciplinary research. When on the one hand, the databases, the methodologies involved on the part of each discipline are so different from those deployed by other disciplines. And, And on the other hand, even the kind of research languages involved are so formidable in some cases. I'm a, I'm a humble historian. I'm probably the least scientific. In fact, I'm certainly the least scientific of the co-editors of this book. And for me to, to follow some of the genetics chapters, for example, or some of the linguistics chapters, genetics and linguistics being probably... Or in archaeology, too, to some extent, but genetics and linguistics being probably the the disciplines that deploy the most kind of formidable and, to some extent, intimidating technical vocabulary, you know, poses a real challenge. And when we were editing the chapters, we were often forced to invite our contributors to seek to find a simpler form of language, a less jargonistic form of language, to use less technical vocabulary so as to make their contributions accessible. To uh, to reader, readers from other disciplines, uh, but at the same time, there was a real problem there because uh, too much simplification, too much dumbing down, too much loss of specific technical uh, language and vocabulary and terminology, uh, risked uh, kind of dumbing down those those chapters uh, in the perceptions of their writers and uh, and other other members of their own disciplines. Uh, and so, undertaking generally cross disciplinary research is poses far more challenges than I perhaps had appreciated when we began this this kind of long journey back in 2008.
3: I'd I'd like to come in there as well Uh, first I'd just add another thing that as Adrian said it's actually hard to cross disciplines it's not easy you have to go out of your comfort zone in your discipline and then you don't know as much you're not the expert anymore so uh, people find it quite hard but in, we also had another version of that in this book. It was compounded by the fact that, in some cases, it's hard to 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 swap, you know, to cross this uh, Ande- Andeanist-Amazonianist divide. And I think David, with his co-author, who's an Andean archaeologist, that was a particularly tough chapter to write because there are such different perceptions within archaeology uh, from those perspectives. And it's, uh, you know, it, I know that was a a tough chapter for them to come to an agreed it's harder if, if if there's two authors if they you know you have to get to an agreed line in the chapter um but to go back about why you, the question is why did we choose an interdisciplinary approach well actually it's the other way around we already had that approach uh, and then we looked for themes that were it was particularly valuable to treat with it with that approach i will say a word here for um sort of the inspiration behind all of this got me into it it a long time ago, we called the first book, David and I called it Archaeology and Language in the Andes. Now, there was a book by Colin Renfrew, who was a professor at Cambridge, long before that, in 1987, called Archaeology and Language. And he, in many ways, was a sort of, uh, one of the first people who really made a very big, he's, he's an archaeologist, uh, made a very big effort to bring these disciplines together. Uh, and it was basically when I read his book, Archaeology and Language, as, um, and I was doing my master's, that I actually then met Colin Renfrew. I was in Cambridge. And I met Colin Renfrew. Uh, and years later, I turn up in Cambridge specifically because I had applied for a research project with him. And that's what brought me to Cambridge. And that's where I suddenly found there was David there who was doing the Andes and the archaeology of the Andes, and I've been doing the linguistics of the Andes, so it all sort of came together. Uh, The funding for the initial conferences was, you know, they were keen on cross-disciplinary proposals. And and what I would say really is the whole point here is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So if you have your take on the past, on prehistory, from each of your disciplines, that will tell you something but it's only a little narrow window because you can't see everything only through the material culture, only through the languages, only through genetics. If you can combine all of those, then you you add those different perspectives together, but then you can start seeing how they all fit together and you get a much more sort of holistic or coherent prehistory. And I th- that's why I think it's, it, it's, it's better to do it in interdisciplinary ways. And it was an obvious idea, a theme to run with Andy's Amazonia.
1: It is in theory. I think we all agree with that, which is why we promoted this this idea. But I just wanted to add a little bit to the to this point, which Adrian was making about the challenges, because I wonder sometimes, as an archaeologist uh, and looking at the at, at you know I, I, most of my research is in in, in the origins of of, of agriculture and uh, and human interactions with the environment. This interest with uh, synthesizing linguistics in archaeology. Archaeology and other disciplines in archaeology has evolved as we've talked about through uh, our interactions uh, at Cambridge back in two thousand and eight, and and uh, and Colin Renfrew's book Archaeology and Andes, which Archaeology and Language, which was looking at the origins of Indo-European, which Paul has mentioned. But I sometimes wonder, really, whether how successful uh some of these efforts are because i don't think that archaeology and lang- renfrew's book archaeology and language is a it's a wonderful book i don't think it's it's the orthodox it's accepted as the orthodox uh explanation for indo-europeans expansion i think that i mean adrian made the point that one has to simplify the interpretations and the pictures, the narratives one is putting together for from one discipline to the other. And I sometimes think that archaeologists looking at, at, at what we have tried to do in the Andean case uh, probably think that some of our the models which Paul and I have promoted are simplistic in some senses. I think that's... Because they haven't really got to grips with the linguistics or they are not prepared to accept uh, the the uh, expertise of, ling- of linguists I mean there, there needs to be a certain amount of uh, interdisciplinary respect in order for this to work so you need to know uh, who in for instance linguistics. Is putting forward the orthodox stories. I also wonder, from a linguistic point of view, Paul, whether any of our uh, eminent linguistic colleagues have been persuaded that their models for pre for the explanation of prehistory uh, of the language expansions of the Andes uh, have changed their views as a result of this interdisciplinary work. Um, perhaps, perhaps I'm 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 getting uh, overly uh, skeptical in my in my middle age, but I I sometimes wonder. About about uh, uh, the, uh, how these, these sorts of interdisciplinary, genuine interdisciplinary syntheses are accepted from the point of view of one discipline or the other. It's far easier just to continue to plow one's own furrow and uh, get more and more sophisticated in the, in, in, within one discipline.
2: I mean, if, if I can just come in there with, with a further comment, and uh, f- picking up on what David's just said. Uh, another fascinating thing is that not only is interdisciplinary research of this kind difficult to produce, but it's difficult to consume too because it tends to fall between the cracks between disciplines, even in the very vehicles for their publication. So uh, a, an earlier volume in the series that I ed- edited with Paul, History and Language in the Andes, was reviewed in the preeminent uh, journal of, of of Latin American History by a historian of Latin America, and the review was very positive, but uh, this historian reviewed the book as a book on history to be published in a journal for historians, and therefore uh, assessed it on its value as, as a work of history, instead of assessing it as its uh, on its value as, as an interdisciplinary work and therefore missed in my opinion much of the real substance the real contribution of the book by judging it only on one of the two pillars on which it was based and and missing the linguistic picture so I think that's probably uh, you know partly speaks to those issues that David was uh, raising about just how 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 much of an impact how how you know the, the, the kind of capacity for penetration of works like this or of 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 the different disciplines involved
3: i think i would come in just also to take up that issue and the one david raised um i would certainly say that in linguistics although the, some of the sort of established hypotheses are still sort of kicking around it has had a huge effect uh, and there is absolutely there's no consensus now at all, which there was before. Uh, it, there was more or less consensus on the traditional uh, view of what spread the language, the main language families Kecho and Mara, and that has been shattered. And there is no, there are even defenders of that hypothesis have said, okay, I think this part is wrong, or they've they tried another proposal. Uh, so everything is in flux, and uh, it has certainly woken people up uh, and people are looking much more much very differently now uh to how they did uh before we started this series of uh of interdisciplinary conferences i think it has shaken them out of their complacency within one discipline and they realized that they can't just get away now anymore with saying well the linguistics proves this even if it's something that's archaeologically implausible so i think it has made an impact and it will it's almost It's almost become expected now that people take the archaeology very seriously when they're trying to propose
1: explanations for the uh, language expansions. Let's hope the archaeologists take the linguistics equally seriously.
0: Now, um, the book contains five parts. Part one, crossing frontiers, perspectives from the various disciplines. Part two, deep time and long chronological perspective. Part three. Overall patterns and alternative models, Part 4, regional case studies from the Altiplano and southern Upper Amazonia, and Part 5, Age of Empires, Inca and Spanish colonial perspectives. Um, wh- why did you um, choose to organize the book this way?
2: So the uh, the book contains actually 25 chapters grouped within those five sections, which means that the chapters are actually quite short. The brief to contributors was that chapters should be around 4,000 words in length. Some are somewhat longer, some are somewhat shorter than that. But they're grouped together in those five sections. The first one, Crossing Frontiers, Perspectives from the Various Disciplines, includes five chapters that set out the broad disciplinary perspective overall, a presentation of methodologies, data sets, first principles from the perspective of archaeology, uh, linguistics, genetics, anthropology. And then there's a fifth chapter um, uh, called the Andes Amazonia Culture Area. That's by Tom Zeidema, an extremely eminent and distinguished uh, ethno-historian and anthropologist of South America who uh, unfortunately, passed away, having uh, attended the conference and submitted his uh, broad-based, wide-ranging, and interesting uh, chapter. So, those, uh, those, uh, that first section really uh, uh, is intended to provide kind of review footings for the other chapters by setting out core methodologies, data sets, and uh, tools for interpretation available for, to each discipline. The remaining sections are, as you said. Uh, Part two, on deep time and the long chronological perspective. Part three, overall patterns uh, and alternative models. Part four, regional case studies, all of which come from the Altiplano and southern upper Amazonia. And part five, age of empires, uh, Inca and Spanish colonial perspectives. And what that means is that after section one, in general terms, the book is organized chronologically from deepest prehistory, actually in some cases back to first settlement, up to the Spanish colonial period and with increasing resolution from the very broadest scale and topics to more detailed case studies and more recent times. And the other thing to highlight is that sections one to four have the disciplinary mix of archaeology, linguistics, uh, uh, genetics and anthropology, while section five again discussing the most recent period uh, and the Inca and Spanish empires uh, uh, draw on ethno-history and history. So that's the kind of broad uh, organization of the book.
0: Now, what are the main ideas and contributions uh, provided by the first part, Crossing Frontiers, perspectives from the various disciplines? Um, Well, um, I'll, I'll take this one
3: on. This is um, yeah, as Adrian said, to an extent, what we're doing here is basically this is this is the background you need. Nobody is at the same time, none of our authors, none of our readers, no doubt, at the same time, an archaeologist, a linguist, a geneticist, an anthropologist, and uh, an ethnohistorian or historian. So there is a certain amount, yeah, as Adrian said, more in some uh, disciplines than others of relatively technical vocabulary, and there's there's a fair amount of lack of understanding. It just, it's just fairly normal uh, about what different disciplines than your own can say. Uh, so, for example, it's not clear to most people, people who ask me what my job is, and I say, well, I do linguistics in order to, you know, work something out about prehistory. And people say, well, what language has got to do with that? How can you work something out from languages about prehistory? So um, that's more obvious for archaeology, but a lot of things are misunderstood. Uh, outside archaeology. So it just felt like w- this is what we did. This is how we approach the whole series of these cross-disciplinary meetings, deliberately trying to foster understanding and feedback between the disciplines. Um, so like, just like we had sort of short talks from each discipline on each topic, we thought we better have a general introduction so that, more or less, so that once you've read the introduction, you you now have all the information you need to better understand any of the chapters from any of the different disciplines. So it was that that's basically the idea uh, in making sure everyone's got the same perspectives uh, on the basics. Uh, So it was quite a bit of sort of methodological explanation, you know, how you go about working anything out about the prehistory from linguistics, how you do it in genetics and what the big differences are. Uh, in different types of genetic data, uh, and so on. And then some general, um, yeah, in the case of Tom Ziedemann's article, some very general perspectives and a very wide comparative view uh, across the Andes Amazon and Amazonia.
1: But very difficult chapters to, well, if I talk to, to just about the archaeology chapter, which uh, I co-wrote with Eduardo Machicado, who, so he's an, uh, an Amazonian archaeologist principally, and I'm an Andean archaeologist, it was a very difficult chapter to write because paul has has summarized the objectives of these chapters but to do that in in 6000 words or whatever uh, to to actually synthesize a history of the discipline covering vast areas amazonia and 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 the andes a history of the di- of, of the discipline of archaeology through through uh through the 20th century and into the into the 21st century and talk about methods and talk about how methods have changed through that time and how those methods and the changing methods bear on the changing archaeological story was was an impossible almost an impossible job and i know that eduardo and i certainly and again we were writing from the amazonian and andean perspective so we had something else to to reconcile there another tension to reconcile so uh I, i i i'm i'm very happy with the chapter but it wasn't it wasn't easy to write it was a it was a to, in order to try and achieve that. I think Paul did a grand job in his linguistics chapter. Lars uh, uh, Ferenc Schmitz is an eminent geneticist. He did us a, a very good um, introduction to the methodology of genetics, I would say, uh, in that chapter. Um, and then we had an excellent contribution from uh, Alf Hornberger an uh, anthropologist, uh, an eminent anthropologist of, of the Amazonian area, who gives a very useful uh, anthropological perspective um, onto this question of the, uh, the so-called Andes-Amazon divide, which I'm sure we might return to somewhere towards the end.
2: Yes, I mean I think what's what's striking about uh, this section, section one, where you have broadly the presentation of the perspective from archaeology, linguistics, genetics, and anthropology. Is that anthropology immediately establishes itself as the discipline that is most skeptical of the notion of an Andes Amazonia divide? And Alf Hornborg presents a very spirited, very clear uh, um, presentation of the argument that the Andes Amazonia divide. Is purely and simply a, con- a construct. It's uh, the product uh, of colonialism. Of, he talks about scholarly blinkeredness, and and it's quite striking over the course of the volume as a whole that um, uh, archaeology, with 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 many reservations, linguistics and genetics, with fewer reservations, do tend to see uh, a genuine divide between uh, prehistoric societies in the Andes and the Amazon. Uh, and Amazonia, whereas anthropology tends not to. And the reason for that different disciplinary stance is is an interesting question that we come back to in the conclusion of the book.
1: But the, that, that perception of a divide from the archaeological perspective has changed very significantly recently, which of course is one of the things we were trying to capture in our in our chapter, Adrian. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, so I mean, the the point about the colonial history here, I think, is we talked earlier about these uh, Spanish explorers who or conquistadors who claimed to see large agricultural societies uh, down the the banks of the Amazon. So this this speaks to this rather simplistic uh, big picture change in the human trajectory, which is always under Lane Archaeology's view of the world, which is a change from, you know, human beings existed as hunter-gatherers for, for, well, for for hundreds of thousands of years. And then relatively recently, in the last 10,000 years, they adopted agriculture. They changed their relationship with their environment completely. They domesticated plants and animals. And that is the basis for complex society and civilization and the internet and podcasts and all that sort of thing. That's the sort of overall big picture story. But within that, there's a huge amount of complication. So the the general picture then of Amazonia from the from the uh, certainly from the spanish perspective the colonial perspective and then through into history was that amazonia was full of hunter gatherers whereas the andes had civilizations and agriculture to be very crude about it now we now know that that's not so that there was lots of agriculture going on in the in the amazon more moreover as we'll talk about shortly i suppose in the deep time perspectives agriculture's origins itself probably lie in amazonia not in the andes So um, uh, it's quite clear that there was agriculture and complex societies going on in Amazonia. And that has been a big feature of archaeology in South America in the last 15 20 20 years but that doesn't necessarily negate the existence of a Andes Amazon divide because as Paul uh, was defining things earlier there are ways of looking at this and it may be that they, you know have interactions between complex societies in Amazonia and in and and within the Andes and which and, and not necessarily between the two
0: Now let's move on to the next part, part two, deep time and long chronological perspective. Um, what are the main uh, ideas and conclusions in this part?
1: Well, I've just been alluding to those. I suppose uh, the, we're talking here about, first of all, about the population of the America Americas as as a whole, and and for, for that, that's a. That in itself is a somewhat contentious story, and it uh, involves genetics and archaeology and so forth. But we, one of our contributors, uh, Tom Dillahay, is one of one of the authorities in that particular question, and uh, and so he contributed uh, a chapter on on what we know about uh, the the first population. We know that you know as the as the Pleistocene ended and the Holocene began, so as the ice uh, from the ice age. Melted, you had two things going on. First of all, the ice sheets on the top of North America uh, started to get smaller. And secondly, the sea level started to fall. So there was a relatively short window where. Modern humans could come across Beringia from Asia into North America uh, and into the Americas, and that happened. Let I me mean, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's a contentious issue, but somewhat let's say somewhere around thirteen thousand years ago. So, in the whole human trajectory, that's more or less yesterday, very short space in time. And then, both continents were populated by by people very quickly, uh, and. The Andes-Amazon divide doesn't really have any bearing on that story. I mean, clearly, there were lots of differences in environments which people had to adapt to as they moved down through the Americas. And some people ended up uh, in Amazonia, and some people ended up on the Pacific coast of South America, and some people ended up in the Andes. But in terms of those very early time depths, uh, the late Pleistocene, um, there are very quickly people in all of those environments. So there's no perceptible divide in Amazonia and I, in, 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 between Andes and Amazon at, at that time depth. And I think that's probably the one of the things Tom Haye was emphasising in, in his chapter. Um, Paul can probably speak to the linguistics briefly. Um, uh, and uh, we had a, a very important chapter, I think, in this section from... Um, uh, a Peruvian archaeologist, well, a German who's spent his whole life in Peru, Peter Kaulica, a, a very important contribution, I think, on the interactions between Amazonia and the coast of Peru, specifically the north coast of Peru, uh, around about... Seven thousand years ago, uh, so when the story of of agricultural origins gets going, and as I mentioned earlier you 've got various plants such as uh, manioc and the sweet potato, peanuts, certain bee- faios beans, and so forth, which seem to have their uh, or certainly have their ancestors in in Amazonia coming across in, across the Andes and, and appearing on the coast of Peru as a package of plants in an agricultural and a new agricultural subsistence to add to marine resources which had always been the foundation of, of, uh, of many people 's subsistence on the coast of Peru. that seems to have happened in the north of Peru at the beginning and that's no accident that's because the andes uh between pura let's say and uh, and the Marignon uh are at their lowest so you have the much easier possibility and and much more um interaction of environments, if you like, between those parts, the the Wankabamba Depression is is what it's known geographically as, I think. Um, And so it's no accident, then, that you get the very first hints of, of uh, iconography and um, social complexity. Not really in the very famous sites, uh, more famous sites now down on the central coast of Peru, like Caral, but the earliest ones in in, in, in Prieta, which Tom Dillehay has excavated, and and Ventarrón um, in, in Lambayeque. Um, so that's what Peter Kaulukai is talking about in that chapter, and I think it's a it's a, it's a it's a very um, useful summary of of that story of interaction. At these very early time depths between, um, between the Andes and, and the Amazon, or between the Amazon and the Andes, let's say. Paul, I don't know if you want to say something, anything about the linguistics there. I can
3: say something. What I would say is that uh, I'll echo Adrian's uh, comment earlier, and uh, my co editors may smile, but it is hard to summarize these things in a short space of, you know, in a, in a small amount of words, which we needed to do because we had so many chapters in the book. Um this chapter actually was one of the shortest I could come up with because, as, as the title says, there actually isn't that much to say, that's the main point. But it's a real cross-disciplinary problem, uh, particularly in that geneticists have sort of run with some very old and completely outdated and methodologically invalid ideas about what language can say about the first settlement of the Americas. Uh, in practice, it's virtually nothing. Uh, but uh, there has been, as if geneticists were, were desperate to find some way of classifying their populations in order to do their comparisons. And so they have taken what they call ethno linguistic uh, identifiers. But for linguists, they're just not valid. They're more or less archaeological, they're more or less uh, geographical things. So it's basically a non valid group of population samples. And so it's, it, it was really sort of cross disciplinary warning, uh, you know, don't, don't follow these completely outdated uh, proposals in linguistics, which have more or less been abandoned in linguistics. Uh, but the news hasn't spread to the other disciplines. So that's why it was a the title of that chapter is what if anything can linguistics tell us? And
0: um, Now, um, what are the main ideas presented in part three, overall patterns and alternative models?
2: So I'll take uh, this one. For me, my co- or co-editors might disagree. For me, uh, section three is the core of the book, the core part of the book. It, it contains seven chapters. Three of them are archaeological Uh, Two of them are genetic and two of them are linguistic in nature. In point of fact, the final chapter in that section, chapter 3.7, which is by Tom Dillehay again, a second chapter contribution to the book from him, co-authored with Brian McRae and Patricia Netherly, is something of a of a distinctive case. Um, it's called The Pacific Coast and Andean Highlands Stroke uh, Amazonia. And what Dillahueh and his co-authors do there, very interestingly, it's kind of a think piece, it's kind of a provocative uh, essay in which they start out by noting that there's been this this notion of an Andean co-tradition. And the Andean co-tradition unites the the highlands with the coast uh, and is distinct from and is constructed to some extent in opposition to uh, Amazonia on the other side of this putative andes Amazonia divide. So uh, what Dillahir and his co-authors in that piece say is, well, what if we were to take the Pacific coast in isolation or not in isolation, but as a unit interacting with the highlands uh, and arguably even with the Eastern Lowlands too. Uh, let's, let's pick apart the Andean co-tradition and think in terms of the coast. And having started to do that, they then think about alternative potential co-traditions. So you could have a co-tradition that unites uh, the Andes and Western Amazonia, for example, or the north coast of Peru and the Eastern Montaña. They even play uh, play with the notion of a, of a tri-tradition, uh, which would uh, unite coast highlands and Eastern Lowlands. And they talk about a region like Chachapoyas, uh, as potentially uh, fruitful in that kind of thinking, where you get this kind of mixture of highland, lowland and coastal traits. So that chapter uh, seeks to do something quite distinctive. The other six chapters in the section, though, uh, start to build the picture that I referred to uh, right back at the beginning of this podcast about how up until the Middle Holocene, certainly, about 5,000 years ago, it's actually very difficult to detect any meaningful divide between Andes and Amazonia. But that from that point on, with some deeper roots too, uh, the the notion of a divide seems to gain more currency, certainly among those uh, 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 disciplines of genetics and linguistics, and also, uh, to some extent at least, uh, archaeology, but with many caveats. Uh, And that that increasing sense of of a divide between Andes and Amazonia then becomes much stronger over time until, by late prehistory, it's already uh, uh, in, in the view of some of our authors certainly an established fact. And the, the most one of the most striking cases of that uh, or statements of that case is Daryl Wilkinson's Chapter Three Point One, titled "How Real Is the Andes-Amazonia Divide: An Archaeological View from the Eastern uh, Piedmont." And Wilkinson, who's done his field work in the Amaibamba Valley in southern Peru, uh, begins by noting that or, or, or by describing the Piedmont itself, the montagna, uh, as a distinctive region in its own right. It is neither Andes nor Amazonia. It has its own uh, characteristics. And that's emphasised by his striking uh, claim that this region, the Piedmont, was the last major region of South America as a whole to be settled by humans something that I found uh, very striking, and as late as after 1,000 BP. And um, uh, Wilkinson notes that when that region was settled, it was done from the Andes. Uh, There's an initial incursion. Uh, spontaneous f- first colonization followed in, in later prehistory by formal incorporation into the Inca Empire. And uh, for, for Wilkinson, certainly, an archaeologist of the Andes, uh, there's no question that the, uh, that the Andes-Amazonian divide was in fact real. He talks about it, he uses the term stark uh, in actual fact. Now, the other archaeological contribution to that section uh, by the distinguished Amazonian archaeologist, the Brazilian uh, Eduardo Goiz Neves, uh, rethinking the role of agriculture and language expansion for ancient Amazonians. What's interesting is that Goiz Neves also sees Uh, different economic and political trajectories on either side of the divide in the Andes and in Amazonia. He does not, of course, see those trajectories as supporting kind of outmoded views uh, that see the Andes as the primary centre for cultural innovation and Amazonia as a backwater. In fact, he notes, of course, that, you know, David's done, done, uh, has done so similarly uh, that uh, uh, there's a lot of um, the, the immense biological diversity in Amazonia creates uh, an equal, uh, equally diverse cultural tradition. You can see this in stone technology. You can see it in uh, in the ceramics too. Uh, but nevertheless, Goyenevez broadly concludes that, uh, and I'm actually quoting here, the distinct economic demographic and political trajectories that unfolded in the highlands and the eastern lowlands were likely determined by contrast between the ecologically diversified and productive environments in the lowland tropics and the very very different conditions in the Andes and the both the linguistic chapters and the genetic chapters in this section too do seem to point to uh, 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 the distinctive nature of Andean populations vis-a-vis Amazonian populations and vice versa, so that our two geneticists here, Fabricio Santos, writing on genetic diversity patterns in the Andes and Amazonia, and Chiara Barbieri, talking about genetic exchanges in the highland, lowland transition environments themselves in South America, uh, make, the, make the, the, the point that um, uh, Andean populations are genetically distinct. They are genetically distinct from populations of adjacent regions in South America and similarly, uh, on a linguistic level, uh, there, there there is linguistic consensus that there are such things as Andean languages that share specific characteristics. They are distinct from Amazonian languages that, that share other characteristics, and that few languages seem to have crossed that barrier. There are some interesting, uh, intriguing potential exceptions to that, but by and large. Uh, Paul drew up a very impressive suite of maps for the volume. And uh, if you look at the linguistic maps, they do appear to show that Andean languages remain uh, by and large limited to the highlands, with some exceptions, I've said some late late exceptions, while our Amazonian languages remain limited to the, uh, to, to the, to the, the, the lowlands. Uh, of course, there are many kind of subtleties in there. Uh, the second linguistic chapter after Paul's by Rick Van Heen and Peter, Peter Musken, Highland-Lowland Relations and Linguistic View, makes the case that even within Amazonia, it's more complex and it looks they, they argue that there's a southern uh, kind of upper Amazonian cluster and, and, and a northern uh, upper Amazonian cluster but by and large there again we can see that there does seem to be a linguistic divide now one can make of this what one wishes but uh, you know I I'm I, coming to it to some extent from the outside as a historian uh, of more recent times uh, would say well if if the populations of the Andes are genetically distinct, And if they speak languages that are distinct from the languages of Amazonia, that would appear to me to uh, reinforce the notion of a separation and differentiation uh, proceeding over a long period of time. Uh, It's As Paul Paul pointed out earlier, it's really about uh, the intensity of interactions among peoples within the Andes, the intensity of interactions among peoples in Amazonia, and the lesser intensity of interactions between those two groups.
1: And the other factor, I suppose, which it might be worth mentioning, uh, which Daryl Wilkinson talks about in, in in his chapter, is the is a factor of of different pathogens. I think he's drawing a specific uh, explanation for the divide in the eastern Piedmont, where where, where he's looking at an archaeological record um, caused by uh, the altitude to which leishmaniasis. Um, uh, can be contracted or not, and so there are different uh, diseases which people suffered from in Amazonia as opposed to the Andes, and people had different resistances to those diseases, and therefore uh, that was a, also part of the nature of uh, of the of the environmentally determined uh, in that case divide between Andes and Amazonia.
0: Now um, let's move on to the next part, part four Regional case studies from the Altiplano and Southern Upper Amazonia. Uh, what are the main uh, ideas presented in this uh, fourth part? Uh, um, this section is, is interesting in that
3: we were as we were structuring the book um, and as case studies were getting more more detailed uh, from some of the authors, it, it became clear that this particular, Region, so the Altiplano and the sort of the hint, the Amazonian and the, the bordering regions of Amazonia, southern Upper Amazonia, uh, were throwing up a number of cases. And so, two particularly two authors from linguistics focused on case studies in this specific part of the Andes-Amazonian divide, and uh, and two authors from archaeology did as well. So it felt like it was a good, uh, a way to bring them together uh, was to put them all into this sort of same regional package as well in, in this set, uh, part of the book. Um, in the, I'll speak briefly to the, the two uh, linguistics chapters there and they what's good about them also is that they, they, it's nice. They give a window a bit into the types of language data and the methods that linguists use, which are generally not really very well understood uh, outside linguistics for obvious reasons. They can be fairly technical. Um, but Willem Adelaar's take. I mean, Willem is also one of these few people who really has looked at, across at languages on both sides. You know, at data uh, on both sides of the Andean-Andes uh, Amazonian divide. He's fundamentally an Andeanist, but he has worked very heavily also on uh, on languages uh, in interaction with uh, Amazonian, with uh, languages of Amazonia in interaction with Andean ones. Now, this case is a. Uh, Sort of long, very important uh, case. He talks about the question of whether there is a connection between uh, the Pukina language uh, spoken in the Altiplano today, in fact, now extinct in the Altiplano, uh, and whether there have been proposals that this might be an Arawak language. So, this is a language that's also often put forward as the most probable main language uh, of the Tiwanaku Middle Horizon. Uh, and the question here would be, is it actually, this is is the real issue, is it an Arawak language, is it a member of the Arawak language family, in which case we would have a major Highland Andean language actually having its deepest origins in Amazonia. Um, So he goes through a lot of the detail, the data, and effectively the result is is relatively faint. It's it's pretty hard. The problem with Pukina is we have so little to go on because the language has gone extinct. We just have some old documentation and it's very limited and it's direct translations of uh, Spanish, uh, basically materials used by uh, for evangel- evangelization uh, in the uh, 17th century, particularly. So we have very little to go on and it's not really clear enough. Uh, it's the relationship would be so far back with Arawak uh, so it's it's not particularly convincing but other disciplines have sort of seized upon it also with proposals for connections between raised field agriculture for example between um, the between the Altiplano and the adjacent uh, parts of Amazonia uh, but really it's it comes out with nothing very conclusive uh, and and the next chapter also uh, by Roberto Sarichier also looks at some sort of old, and generally now abandoned and outdated hypotheses uh, about potential links between uh, languages of Amazonia uh, and the Andes. Uh, and in this case, Uro, uh, a different Highland, Highland language family. This case too, both of these cases uh, look into something that I go into in my introductory chapter, because it's it's a critical way of how you use langu- linguistics to try and do prehistory. The question is, do you can see signals of languages that have a common origin and then expanded into a family or you can see so divergence processes or you can see in language in linguistics evidence of convergence processes uh, and sometimes it can at very deep time depths it can get hard to work out whether it's convergence or divergence or the linguist can be fairly clear but other disciplines get the wrong end of the stick so from that perspective it was a very are very valuable cross disciplinary uh chapters in setting out that some of the things you might read in the old linguistic literature you have uh, you have to take with a uh, a very big dose of salt uh, and other other disciplines need to be wary of just jumping on those as if they've got linguistic proof uh, of something they would like to see in their record as well uh as for two archaeology chapters i think i'd probably better hand over to to david Mm -hmm. uh <clears throat> if he has any comments on yeah, those. Well, theory. I
1: already mentioned uh, Heiko uh, Prumes' contribution earlier. Um, both these chapters are about the Llanos de Mojos, which is a, an, a, an area of Bolivia. Um, and I suppose it's it's important in many ways. The first thing is that it's, it, it emphasizes uh, the uh, point we were making earlier about the huge ecological diversity Within Amazonia, Amazonia itself is 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 immense. Uh, as I as I said earlier, I mean it's a, the area of Western Europe, so it's no surprising. It's not surpri- not surprising at all that there's a huge amount of diversity within it, and it shouldn't just be. It can't just be uh, viewed as as uh, one relentless, unchanging uh, flooded forest. The yanos de Mojos are not really. Um, uh, jungle at all, and uh, they are savanna. Uh, they are seasonally flooded savannas, um, and uh, there's interesting data um, from two of our, our authors here, Jose Capriles and Umberto Lombardo, about the time depth of of agricultural origins in this part of the world. Um, but Heiko. Proumous's chapter, I think, is striking for the reasons which I mentioned earlier, in that he's one of the few people who's got very great experience on both archaeological experience on both sides of the divide, and the message he he chooses to emphasise in his chapter is that there is very little that he can see in the archaeological record in the Yanos de Mojos, which is a a complex. Amazonian archaeological record, but doesn't show very much interaction with an equally complex Andean archaeological record uh, in the immediate uh, uh, hinterlands of of southern Peru. Um, So again, his chapter, I think, is one of the most powerful archaeological uh, reinforcements of the existence of an Andes-Amazon divide, at least at this particular scale and uh, in, t- in time and space of the Anos de Mojos through the late intermediate period and into the Inca late horizon.
0: Now, uh, let's move on to the final part, part five, Age of Empires, Inca and Spanish colonial perspectives. Now, uh, What are the main... Um, ideas and conclusions presented in this uh, final section
2: so this final section has uh, has four chapters um two ethno-historical chapters uh, and two historical chapters the ethno-historical chapters are by vera Tulenova and christiana bertazzoni and then i contribute the two historical chapters So what you've got here then, the the section, as we've known, is called Age of Empires, Inca and Spanish Colonial Perspectives. We're looking now at the Inca Empire and then finally at the Spanish Empire in the Viceroyalty of Peru. And what's very striking is that the attitudes of both those empires towards Amazonia show many major similarities. So these are very different empires. One's an ancient American empire. The other is an early modern European empire, albeit, of course, uh, built on Andean foundations. Very different polities, but both Andean polities and both uh, displaying very similar degrees of of interaction or lack of interaction with Amazonia and also attitudes towards the peoples of Amazonia so that neither the Inca empire nor uh, Spanish Peru ever managed to establish much foothold in Amazonia beyond the the, the Montagna itself, and th- th- this begs the question, doesn't it? If if two such very different polities uh, appear to face very similar obstacles, be they environmental or sociological to uh, to establish themselves in, in Amazonia and not for want of trying because both empires made significant military efforts, uh, incursions into Amazonia then, then what would explain that? What, what are those powerful factors that appear to have created a really substantial barrier to the expansion of Andean polities? Both pre and post, uh, both pre colonial and colonial, into Amazonia. Now, in my pro- main chapter there, Colonial Coda, uh, looking, of course, at, at the case of the Spanish Empire in South America and vice versa, Peru, I make the point that uh, Spanish expansion in South America during the era of conquest in the late 15th and the early 16th centuries is often seen in a rather organic way. It's kind of taken as a given that it's simply what Spaniards did. They expanded and conquered. But of course, there were a number of specific factors that conditioned and determined Spanish imperial expansion. The Spanish didn't simply expand willy-nilly and without any kind of uh uh, any kind of factors conditioning that expansion Uh, in actual fact spanish expansion was conditioned by a number of specific incentives and also by disincentives so the incentives the primary one was actually large populations subject to uh to being used as tributary populations the presence of metal precious metal deposits the inherent uh, fertility of land for agricultural purposes, strategic factors could come into it too. Now, if you look across the Spanish Empire in the in the Americas as a whole, the presence of any one of those factors could be strong enough to draw the Spaniards into regions, uh, uh, into new regions, often regions beyond the kind of central Andean uh, region beyond mesoamerica uh, up in up in central Mexico the combination of those factors would always lead to uh, Spanish expansion into those regions so the, the point of the chapter is if the Spaniards didn't uh, didn't expand into amazonia then it, it was for specific reasons it was because uh, they didn't find the kind of large uh, uh populations that could be made subject to to tribute there. They didn't find sufficiently rich uh, um, precious metals deposits, although, of course, there were precious metals uh, in in the region and and surrounding regions. Uh, Or they faced other obstacles to penetration that could, of course, be uh, military resistance on the part of lowland lowland groups. But overall, then, that that section, what it really does is underscore the fact that certainly by late prehistory, if not earlier, and certainly during the colonial era, the Andes-Amazonia divide was a reality. It was a lived experience. Few Spaniards lived beyond the frontier. There were no Spanish colonial provinces established beyond the montaña. There were no Spanish colonial towns established uh, beyond the the line of the montaña. The only presence was that of missions, and uh, these involved very small numbers of Europeans, for all that they had uh, large impacts on on, uh, on on local groups in Amazonia, uh, and they were understood explicitly as frontier institutions. Missions were frontier institutions, and in themselves speak to the fact that uh, there was the perception that there was a real frontier there.
1: And I think the other factor, just to mention quickly here, in terms of the Spanish. Uh, the early colonial period is that this uh, this uh, idea that amazonia was a uh, uh, empty largely empty landscape populated only by very small populations of hunter gatherers as opposed to uh, the Andes uh, with uh, large empires and the and the incas uh, i mean indeed a much larger polity uh, encountered by Spain than anything which existed in Europe at the time um this image uh, uh, this this very uh, stark contrast between the two in the revisionist idea uh of archaeology and anthropology um uh, on the, in the 21st century is an, is likely to be an outcome of of disease just like the rest of south america Europeans the old world brought with it old world pathogens which had a catastrophic effect on 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 people because they had no resistance to it and and there was a collapse in population in amazonia which um uh, gave rise to this idea then that amazonia was 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 empty and in fact the people uh, who had been Agriculturalists, I mean, there's fairly good evidence of this in, se- in several specific cases. Returned to hunter-gathering as a f- as a form of subsistence. So um, the whole uh, sort of uh, idea of progress from one hunting, hunting and gathering um, sort of extreme pole through to agriculture and complex civilization on the other is upturned in Amazonia as a result of the colonial impact and disease, uh, and that is what gives rise to. This this myth of Amazonia being empty and uh, um, uh, and and just uh, ripe for eventually ripe for colonization and uh, and and the rubber boom and so so forth in historical times.
2: Yes, although of course the the rubber boom colonization of Amazonia happens only in the nineteenth century. There's there's still there's still um, little to no Spanish colonial colonization in Amazonia prior to to independence. I mean, I suppose historians would come back to your point, David, and say that well. It's not as though uh, those pathogens and epidemics and diseases across the region didn't have a major impact on Andean populations. So if, if we're required to believe that uh, circumstances in Amazonia were fundamentally transformed by disease and that that set up a new paradigm that was misleading with respect to the position in prehistory, then it begs the obvious question, well, why, why was the same not true in the Andes? right?
1: okay but i think i think it's a question of degree and i think that uh, that that idea of a of a pristine myth has been uh, identified by geographers and historians throughout the americas not just in amazonia um, certainly in, in central america uh, and so forth this the, the, the idea that that the americas was relatively pristine as an environment is a myth created by the collapsing population by by these pathogens uh, uh, very quickly, in fact, before the Spanish even arrived, of course, um the, the populations had been severely impacted by the diseases which had been spread onto the continent. You know uh when cut back, supposed to have died of smallpox before, you know, decades before the Spanish ever set foot in Peru. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Um now um there is a, a conclusion, a final uh, conclusion in, um, in the book, entitled The Andes-Amazonia Divide, Myth and Reality. Um, what are the main um, ideas uh, provided in this, uh, in this conclusion?
2: I don't know whether my co-editors would like to take that.
1: Well, I think a lot of this was 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 your crafting, as you put it, uh, Adrian. Maybe you should uh, you you should.
3: Uh... Oh, I'm happy to uh, to have uh... a, a, a my quick perspective. Well, while, while Adrian thinks on his feet, um, yeah, one of the one of the big things that we we talk about uh, repeatedly, and you know, the book is organized chronologically, uh, and that this idea of whether there was an Andes Amazonia divide seems to sharpen through time certainly right at the end it seems to be at its clearest even in how i mean i particularly liked adrian's phrase you know it was a lived experience it really was a lived real experience uh uh, by the certainly by the time when we know most which is in a historical period Um, and i also it it came across another another questions here is that of course this divide does not have to have been stable through time it may have been increasing through time but also that's even true of the environments i mean david has also mentioned that climate change was going on you know this the yanos de mojos savanna uh, savanna and rainforest fluctuated significantly uh, over the, the the long you know the, over the time of time frame of human settlement anyway so obviously things are going to be changing through time so we try and draw some conclusions also about how seriously, you know, how, how stark the Andes-Amazonia, Andes-Amazonia divide was through time. That certainly could have changed. Um, uh, and we also look, we also summarize some of the differences between the disciplines having gone through, like Adrian said, you know, there are, in anthropology, there seems to be much more skepticism that the, the divide was real than, than in some of the other disciplines. Um,
2: i think i think largely the conclusion um, that that I, I drew from the chapters once the once the volume had come together and and one that i found somewhat surprising was that geneticists seem to agree i mean i've mentioned this before geneticists seem to agree that uh, andean populations are genetically distinct from neighboring populations in south america linguists seem to agree pretty clearly that The languages of the Andes can be grouped into a group called Andean languages that are distinct from languages in other parts of of South America. And uh, archaeologists, um, too, seem to recognize that whatever the the kind of relative balance of power, as it were, or the the different, the controversial uh, topic of the kind of the size and scale and, uh, of polities, the, 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 the overall populations of polities in Andes and Amazonia, those kinds of things, even the very construction of monumental architecture and all those, all, all those kinds of topics. Whatever the nature of those, those issues, um, you seem to have a distinct archaeological tradition in the Andes and a distinct archaeological tradition in, in Amazonia. So that even in a region like the Llanos de which not only has a lot of archaeology, as David pointed out earlier, but it's adjacent to the Altiplano, where some of the most celebrated Andean civilizations, including notably Tiwanaku, have flourished. And yet there seems to have been little, even to no, uh, interaction between those two regions. It seems to me to be... Very striking. So, well, no
1: interaction. But, but, uh, but uh, uh, just sorry to chip in, there, Adrian. I mean, I, I mean, I guess this goes to the point which we've all emphasized from the beginning. There's always interaction, and they're very important interactions of raw materials and luxury goods and so forth. But no, but no meaningful interaction. To use your the word you you used earlier.
2: Yeah. yeah the, the, re, the reason I, I pushed my language there somewhat is is thinking of Heiko Pruma's chapter in which he makes this extra It was one of those kind of kind of astonishing moments for me when I first read his chapter in which he makes the point that there is no Inca, there's there's no uh, Inca archaeology, no single artifact and in fact that the, the total number of artefacts discovered from, from the Andes in, uh, in archaeological context in the Anos de Mokos, is minuscule. I think off the top of my head, it's, it's kind of one kilo or two kilos of stones uh, that have been recovered from, from, uh, in total. Uh, it, it, I think he says at one point it could have been brought into the region from the Andes in a single backpack, basically. Um, in other words, you know, th- this is actually quite a stark archaeological divide albeit clearly uh it, that's not to say there was no interaction but for there to be no material culture crossing the divide it seems very very striking so you know by by late prehistory for me the fact that the genetics is different the fact that the languages are different this does seem to suggest a separation uh, leading to a differentiation proceeding over a very long period of time now the the, the big Discipline, arguing that that none of that is right, uh, or or that 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 that. Position is far too simplistic or, or or exaggerated. Is anthropology, and this poses interesting questions as to why anthropology uh, would see these issues uh, differently. Not only our contribute contributors here, but Bruce Mannheim, a very eminent anthropologist and linguist, and an Andeanist. to uh, boot, he he too at the conference in, back in Leipzig, um, you know, said. I hope this will be the. I'm very happy that this uh, this. Um, conference is being organised, but I hope it will be the last of its kind. You know, we don't need to be talking about these issues anymore. Uh, so so uh, that, that was the, what, what came to, to, to strike me most about about the volume as a whole. And those are the kinds of issues that we explore in the conclusion.
0: Well, Dr. Pierce, Dr. Bersford-Jones, Dr. Higarty, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our interview, I wonder if you could tell us about what research projects you are working on now.
2: I think uh, just before we conclude, I think uh, all three of us wanted to note that the book is dedicated to two people, uh, John Hemming and uh, Tom Zeidema. Now, I've mentioned Tom Zeidema already uh, an eminent uh, anthropologist and ethno-historian known particularly for work on the Incas and the Seques system in Cuzco from the 1960s onwards, but actually somebody who took a much broader view and in his chapter contribution to the book is able to tease out some really intriguing parallels uh, 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 and and similarities between societies uh, not only on either side of the divide, but very far on either side of the divide, Um, and that's important to note. I think to, to, to just mention John Hemming, I'll pass over to Paul.
3: Yes, I just wanted to uh, put a little anecdote in there, uh, just because, um, in fact, John Hemming gave a talk uh, actually at the meeting. He took part in the meeting and he gave a, a sort of specially invited talk on the on El Dorado or the El Dorado myths. Uh, again, the Amazonia as seen from the highlands. Uh, unfortunately, he had to compete with Germany playing in the world Cup at exactly the time we missed timed we his talk so uh but um I wanted to mention him particularly because again uh he really did span the Andes and amazonia He's an author of a number of really significant major works on the uh indigenous populations of amazonia but actually um how I first came into it came into his work was. Uh, Adrian had already been to uh, Peru uh, before I had, uh, while we were still undergraduates. uh, And as soon as I had finished, uh, I headed off to Colombia and uh, Adrian insisted I read Conquest of the Incas by John Hemming. And I took the book with me. But while I was living in Colombia for a year, I refused to read it. I said, I'm going to take this. And the moment I stepped into Peru and got on a bus in Tumbes and headed off to Chachapoyas was when I started reading the book. Uh, and basically I love Colombia, but it soon became clear to me that I wanted to go to Peru and spend a huge amount of time in Peru. And for me, it was, a, it was one of the most, that and Renfrew's books, uh, archaeology and language were two of the sort of most formative books I've ever read. Uh, so I was delighted in the end that we were able to, to dedicate the book, uh, also to, uh, to John Hemming. So I just thought I'd throw that in because it was, you know, if you, the further back you go, that these are really fundamental things that, that ended up with where we are now, which is we have this volume. It's on the Andes and Amazonia, uh, and it's done by me, David, and uh, and Adrian. So there was a very good reason for dedicating the book to both of these scholars.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Um, now, um, what, what about your um, current research? Uh, could you tell us a bit about uh, what are you working on now?
2: Well, I have moved uh, from my origins as a colonialist um, through the 19th century now into the 20th century and the late 20th century. I'm actually working on a book at the moment on the Falklands or Malvinas War of 1982, which I find fascinating as an extraordinary instance of Anglo-Latin American relations, albeit a disastrous one. Uh, and as you know, I was 15 at the time of the Falklands War. And I think I've been kind of interested by it ever since. And I started reading about it, and it's one of those research projects that kind of takes you over before you're you're really aware of it. I wasn't aware that I was writing a book on the Falklands War for some years until it gradually became apparent to me that I was. So that is my that is my current obsession, and my kids suffer endlessly from the fact that I am, as I always tell them, Falklandizing again. Well, I suppose
1: uh it's appropriate, given the the uh the interdisciplinary nature of the book and everything we've been talking about, that my interests go completely the opposite way, as far away in time as you could possibly get, I suppose, because uh I've sort of mentioned my interest in the origins of agriculture. Uh, earlier. But we're we're all interested in South America. And Paul's mentioned, you know, we're all captivated by John Hemming's book, Conquest of the Incas. And 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 wonderful uh, sites like Machu Picchu and so forth. And yet, the more I've got interested in, the more time I've spent doing Andean archaeology, the more I've realised that that the Machu Picchu is 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 completely well, it's very beautiful, of course, uh, but it's not the, it's not what's important about South American archaeology. What's important. For the rest of humanity, about South America is the fact that this was one of the few regions in the world where a pristine development of agriculture took place. So, as I said earlier, for hundreds of thousands of years, people had subsisted by hunting and gathering. And then, around about 10,000 years ago, in a few places in the world, they completely changed their relationship with the environment for reasons we don't yet properly understand. And they began to domesticate plants and animals, and the consequences of that were uh, extremely far-reaching because everything follows from that original change in the human trajectory. And it took place... In one of the places it took place is in, in, the, in the Andean region, widely defined uh, to mean also the eastern slopes of the, of, of, uh, of the Andes, where they interact with Amazonia, where you have that tremendous environmental diversity and where a whole lot of very important plants come from. Uh, these are plants which, you know, like manioc and the sweet potato, on which millions of people throughout the Pacific and, and in Africa uh, now depend uh, as a result of the exchange of plants uh, which which has happened through time and culminated of course with the what's now called the the Colombian exchange between the old world and the new world following the the encounter of the old world of, of uh, so maize is now the most important economic crop in the world uh, and uh, and if we were interested in something like Italian cuisine for instance had no tomatoes in it before the discovery of the Americas Indian cuisine had no chilies in it and these are all things which catch people by surprise uh, and I think that uh, they all speak to uh, why the um, why South America why why Peru why the Andes and the and the Amazon uh, is uh, a very important part of the wider human story not just uh, a very beguiling set of uh, archaeological ruins like uh, Machu Picchu
3: well I think uh, for my future career path it looks like I've got my work cut out to try and persuade my two co-editors to stay <laughs> in the on the line I'm looking at is basically a cross-disciplinary prehistory for the Andes, which I think we need prehistory and history. The Andean past, uh, I'm going to be focusing uh, my attention increasingly on that uh, for the next however many years. Uh, and I hope to continue uh, this series of symposia, uh, cross-disciplinary ones, and ultimately I hope we can come come up with a, a much more coherent prehistory for the Andes, uh, prehistory, you know, Andean past, prehistory and history, from all of these different disciplines. Uh, and that's what I'm going to be trying to do over the next few years. And I am I hope I can still count on my colleagues
0: and co-authors to do so. I'm really looking forward to reading your your new research projects and your new books. Thank you so much for. I'm really looking forward to reading your new um, research and and books. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Thank Thank you, Gustavo. Thank Thank you for your interest. Thank you so much. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Anthropology.